Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. And on this episode, we're celebrating National Estate Planning Awareness Week a week late. If a client comes to me to create an estate plan, I think it's important that I ask them who their life insurance professional is and integrate them, who their money manager is and integrate them, who their banker is. Bring them into the process so that the estate plan can be done holistically. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. So here's what happened. We thought estate planning week was this week. And then we realized we missed it by a week. But you know what? Every week is estate planning week here at the Better Off Podcast because, you know, you don't want to deal with your death. I get it. It's a bummer. Who wants to think about it? But Let's try to get you over that hump. Let's try to give you the impetus to actually do something. This is so important. One of the things that I write about in my forthcoming book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, is that I think it is an act of selfishness not to actually plan for your estate issues. I'm sorry. I do. I know it's emotional. I know it's hard. But you're going to leave your family with a mess to clean up. So we wanted to get somebody on the pod to help give you a little bit of a jump. This guy loves estate planning. He's an attorney, but don't let that dissuade you. He's passionate about the topic, and he makes it easy. So here is Russell Fishkind, estate attorney extraordinaire and Mark's professor at NYU for his CFP class on estate planning. We are going to talk about estate planning 101. Here's our interview with Russell. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Russell Fishkind, welcome to the program. This is very exciting because you were Mark's professor, weren't you? Thank you, yes. Uh, I've been teaching estate planning in NYU for 21 years now. Russell, what is the best financial decision or career decision that you've ever made? I'm going to go with career decision. I always wanted to go to law school. Fortunately, I did go to law school and became a lawyer, and I really enjoy my practice. Now, it wasn't so much a decision to become a trust and estate lawyer, but I got a job at U.S. Trust, and I found I really liked it. I have stuck with being a trust and estate lawyer now for 30 years, and I have to tell you, Joe, I really like it. You mean you started practicing law when you were 13? You look so young. (laughs) Right after your bar mitzvah, you're just able to do that. That's wonderful. And you know what? You write passionately about this. You speak passionately. That's why you're a wonderful professor. That's what Mark said. We need to kick some ass, essentially, and get people to pay attention to their estate planning. I think that so many folks said, oh, well, the tax law changed. Now I don't actually have to worry about it because there's no tax that I have to be freaked out about. I'm married. I don't have $22 million. Why do people need to do this? Well, if you just look at some celebrities who've died without a will and you look at the litigation that's erupted as a result of them dying without a will, having nothing to do with tax planning, it's that the family members are fighting over who the executor should be. Or in Prince's example, the protection of his intellectual property rights with all of his music. So I think it's important for families to consider creating an estate plan that protects each other, that protects their children, that names the correct fiduciaries in an effort to promote their legacy and not have probate litigation. You know, it's so funny. Sometimes I've written about this and I'll say, you know, gosh, if if you don't do it, you got to go through this probate process and that's a pain in the ass and 
People say to me, that probate wasn't that bad. Am I wrong in saying that it is a pain in the ass? Sometimes it can be, right? That's the correct answer. Sometimes it can be. It depends on the state. It depends on the county. Um, Sometimes you have a will which wasn't signed properly or there's no self-proofing affidavit which makes probate a difficult process. The idea is to have an estate plan that's properly drafted, properly executed, and then, depending upon the state you're in, probate should be a fairly smooth process. And obviously there are certain assets that just bypass probate. So anything that's by contract, insurance proceeds are not probated. Or if you own uh, a house with somebody and it's by contract, it'll pass to the other person. Let's see what else, a retirement account. But for everything else, that's an asset that, that would have to be probated, right? So the assets that you mentioned we would call them, in if we're teaching, testamentary substitutes, assets that pass by operation of law, and they're not probate assets. However, oftentimes, it's that designation, that beneficiary designation, that's the problem. By way of example, how many of your listeners have IRAs or 401ks? Tons. Okay. Perhaps they name their spouse as beneficiary, and maybe that's fine. But oftentimes what I'm seeing is they name as the secondary beneficiary their minor children. Right. Minor children cannot inherit. That was the small problem. The big problem they've now created is there's no trust created for the benefit of the child. Mm. So what you need to do is integrate the titling of the asset with the will. By way of example, if I have three children and I create a standard age terminating trust that says when they're 25, they get a third. Right. When they're 30, they get a half. When they're 35, they get the balance. I like to call that the controlling from the grave part of the scenario. Well, we're trying to, <laughs> you try and distribute money as they mature. They're probably fine. You got to wait till 35. That seems like a little excessive. But okay, continue your example. Okay, but you would agree that the two year old to the 12 year old. Okay, totally. So if you agree with that part, then the secondary beneficiary designation should be changed to the trustees under my last will and testament. And that way, the IRA, the 401k, the group term life insurance can come into the will. Mm. And yes, it becomes a probate asset, but then it's governed by the trust for the benefit of the children. What is the problem when, I've heard a state attorney say that a lot of people just, they can't really figure out what they wanna do. Maybe they're divorced and they have young kids and sometimes they'll just write as the beneficiary, the estate of. What's the problem with doing that? Well, number one, it subjects it to claims of creditors. So that's the first thing that you wanna avoid. And that's why when I gave you the example, you name instead of the estate of, to the trustees under the last will and testament of Jill or Russell. And that way it's not subject to claims of creditors. What about the idea that when you die intestate that there's like a sort of a formula and each state is different, is that correct? Uh, that is correct. So if someone dies without a will, like Aretha Franklin, like Prince. We're, both, we're like them anyway. Very much so. I'll sing if you'd like, just yeah, so we can I'd test like this that. theory. The state governs the distribution of the assets. That's called intestacy. And by the way, the personal representative would be called the administrator, and they have to be bonded. So between being bonded and being guided by the state's dispositive provisions as opposed to the client's, Oftentimes, it's, it's a problem. But the bigger problem, because you were alluding to problems, is that with respect to estate planning, what I'm finding is that the professionals sometimes are part of the problem mm. because they're not integrating their services. Meaning, if a client comes to me to create an estate plan, I think it's important 
that I ask them who their life insurance professional is and integrate them, who their money manager is and integrate them, who their banker is. Bring them into the process so that the estate plan can be done holistically. This is not a a one-off transaction. It should be a dynamic transaction that involves a team who holistically create a plan that reflects the testator's intent. And why don't more attorneys do that? Because like, ah, I don't want to bring those yuck, those sales guys into my world. Or what, why do you think, what prevents a qualified estate attorney from doing that, do you think? Well, maybe the fear is that it's going to slow up the process. Maybe the fear is that uh, there's going to be a sale involved, that one of the professionals might be selling some product. While those two issues might be true, I find seasoned professionals, certified financial planners, uh, know how to effectively create an estate plan. And if there is to be a need for life insurance, they know how to address it properly. But I might also add that it's not just the will that is material to an effective estate plan. It should be a will or what's called a pour-over will uh, revocable trust to bypass probate, but also a health care proxy and a power of attorney. And what I'm finding, and as Mark knows, I ask my students routinely, how many of you have a health care proxy and a power of attorney? And it shocks me that sophisticated professionals don't have health care proxies and powers of attorney. I think that those documents are very difficult. They're hard conversations to have, whether it's with your parents or your friends and even your loved ones, because it does force you to contemplate death or illness. And it's scary. How can you help people get over that hurdle? So what I like to do is to explain to individuals what a healthcare proxy is, and it may not be exactly what they think it is. And that is to say, most people think of a living will or an advanced director for healthcare as the pull the plug document. And therefore, you correctly surmised, not that much fun to talk about. But when you actually read a healthcare proxy, it's so much more than that. You're appointing a healthcare agent. So if for any reason, there's an issue where you just can't speak for yourself, you need your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your significant other or sibling to just talk to the doctors, figure out what they should do, get medical records, have them airlifted to the right hospital and just get involved. Without the healthcare proxy, none of those family members or spouses have the right to do so. Do you find that in most hospitals that if the spouse shows up that they'll be happy to talk to the person, but if it's not a spouse, it's a little bit harder to do? So I think you're right to a point. They will talk to you as the spouse, but the minute you say, I want to see his medical records, I want to move him out of this hospital to another hospital, I don't want to see this physician, I want to see a different physician, that's when you're going to get the blinking yellow, if not the red, because you wouldn't have the authority to do these things. The other thing that might catch parents' attention is for those parents who have children in college, the child in college needs a health care proxy. Oh, my God. I never thought about that. the parent that. as an agent. That's so interesting. So if you look at it from that perspective and you say, well, clearly your child needs it once they attain age 18. Right. Maybe you should have the same protection. Let's go back a second and really discuss what are some of the elements of a basic estate plan? What should I be carrying into the office with me to make that a productive meeting? So, um, Jill, I use what's called a last will and testament fact sheet. So if you called, I would email the fact sheet to you, and I'd ask you to fill it out and bring it with you to the meeting. 
when you come to the meeting, I walk through the fact sheet with you as almost a guide to begin a conversation. Because after all, I'm going to be asking you about the relationship you may have with your spouse or your children or how are they doing or what keeps you up at night. So it's very important that we have a rapport, that you feel comfortable because this process is dynamic. So we start with the fact sheet. And then I'll ask you about your banker, your money manager, your life insurance professional, and then start asking you questions like, well, if something happened, I see you have a a bracelet or a necklace or or, or a, a ring, who would you like your personalities to go to? And oftentimes, it's the distribution of personalities that causes, many cases, sisters to fight over mom's engagement ring, over the candlesticks. We start with the fact sheet. And then it morphs into a conversation about personalities, about who should be the beneficiary of your state, and how old are your beneficiaries, and should there be trusts. And another big area, and it's, it's really a frightening statistic, is about 18% of all Americans are recognized as having a disability. Hmm. And if that's so, we know that we need to start talking more about the utilization of a supplemental needs trust a trust that would be created for the benefit of a child who may have a disability but wants to protect any inheritance from a claim of Medicaid or security disability income. Okay, so we're coming into a meeting with an estate attorney. You are really spending half of your time being a shrink and half your time being an attorney. So can you speak a little bit to this idea that there are so many people who are like, can I just do this online? Talk about why a qualified estate attorney is preferable to filling out documents online. What percentage of Americans have been divorced and remarried? I don't know, half? Okay, so let's go with half. When you have a second marriage and children from a prior marriage, in my experience, that's the number one fact pattern that causes probate litigation. Hmm. And I could assure you the online will is not going to expose the nuances that exist between spouse number two and the children from the first marriage. So you have to have a discussion about creating a trust called, by way of example, a Q-tip, a Qualified Terminable Interest Property Trust, for the benefit of spouse, and determine how much is the right amount to fund it with while preserving enough of, let's say, dad's asset base to leave to the children from the first marriage so you have a balance, so the estate plan is balanced as between the needs of the two different classes. I don't think the online programs are designed to expose or to guide individuals as to how to create a plan that provides for different classes. Okay, let's say that I'm 30 years old, I'm listening to the show, I'm single. I was like, okay, Russell's scared the crap out of me, I'll get my estate documents. I'm not married. I'm single. Can I do it online or should I not? I mean, maybe the alternative is not doing nothing. So maybe this is in preferable to nothing. But can I do it if I'm single, simple? Is that reasonable? So I'm not a fan and it might come across as self-serving. I get it. But here's my thought. As a 30-year-old, you may want to take care of mom or dad. You may have a kitten or a puppy. You may want to give money to your siblings. You may want to give it to your alma mater. I'd rather see it done right. And I think estate planning has to include a relationship with someone who's skilled because the probability is that 30-year-old 
perhaps. Maybe they're going to get married. Maybe they're going to have a significant other that the estate planning need will evolve. So I think it's better to start with an estate planner, not just any attorney. And I'm sure they're... Right. Like, Joe did my real estate closing three years ago. No. Don't we hear that all the time? All the time. And all those, the time. those are usually... And no knock on real estate lawyers, but those are usually the wills that aren't drafted properly. And it's not a will. It's They need an estate plan. So I think your clients would be, or your listeners, would be best served by starting with a fact sheet, as you pointed out, but sitting with an estate planning attorney for a half hour or 45 minutes. And if your 30-year-old doesn't feel comfortable, move on. There's others. Right. Find someone where you feel connection to. And once you have that connection, keep the relationship because their life is going to evolve. They will need prudent and proper estate planning done. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Russell Fishkind in just a minute. I can't put a finer point on it. Of your entire financial life, estate planning is just one of the big categories that you need to address in your financial life. You cannot be like the average schlub and just blow off your estate planning. It's crazy. And by the way, you don't want to be the average schlub when it comes to managing your money. That's why I'm delighted that Betterment is our sponsor. Betterment is the smart way to manage your money. It is the investing tool for those who refuse to settle for average investing. Betterment uses cutting-edge technology combined with human expertise. Betterment gives you tax-efficient investing strategies that can help give you an edge. All this for low, transparent fees. Of course, all investing involves risk. Now, that said, listen up here because Better Off listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Better Off. That's Betterment.com slash Better Off. Betterment, outsmart average. And now back to our interview with Russell Fishkind. So let's talk about some other mistakes that like classic mistakes that you see, which are obviously not having your documents, all of the documents you need and mistitling, not harmonizing your various accounts with the plan itself. What other mistakes are people making when they conduct their estate planning? Well, so I wrote this book called Probate Wars of the Rich and Famous, and it was intended to highlight the most common mistakes that people are making. So, for example... In the chapter called Lessons from the Dead, which is about Jerry Garcia, he named his third spouse as executor of his estate, which included daughters born from a prior marriage and and, uh, a relationship that wasn't a marriage. You're shaking your head because you're right. It's very clear that that's going to be a problem. And it was a problem. And it created litigation for years. So number one, Choice of fiduciary, who you name as your executor. Who should that be in most cases? For like, Just talk about the characteristics that make for a good executor or executrix. Okay, so pattern recognition. So if it's a first marriage, long-term marriage, the spouses are on the same page, that's a pretty easy one. Usually it's the spouses. If the family structure consists of adult children who get along well, uh, like the Waltons, everybody loves each the other. The Schlesingers. <laughs> but, you know, there aren't too many families like the Schlesingers. Mm-hmm. But if that's the case, perhaps you can name the adult 
children who get along well as the successor executors. Now let's talk about the Hatfields and the McCoys. And these are families where there's angst, where mm. there's a second or third marriage, where they don't get along well, where perhaps it's a dysfunctional family. So my point with the Jerry Garcia chapter is you don't name an interested party. It's perhaps better to name an independent fiduciary, an independent executor. That could be a bank. It could be an accountant. It could be another family member who they just trust. Utilize the independent so as to cut off the emotional angst where one group, the children, might think spouse number two is trying to get the house, or in Robin Williams' case, keep the Emmy Awards or the personalities and not give it to the children. Mm. If you have an independent executor, it's going to cut those arguments out. What about um, the idea that that costs money, right? So people say, yeah, but then I have to pay a fee to so-and-so. It's well worth it when you think about how much it would cost for litigation. And these things do lead to litigation or at least a lot of emotional angst, which is costly on a different level. Well, you're clearly experienced and you've been through this because that's exactly right. When you have a fiduciary or an executor who really doesn't know what they're doing, who doesn't communicate, who isn't transparent, it leads to litigation. So perhaps the client thought they were saving money by naming wife number three or husband number three as executor. They're not saving money. They're causing litigation. And litigation is really expensive. Yeah. When you look at the, the system as it exists right now, the legal structure, I think that what surprised me, when my dad died, so it's five years now, almost five years since he died, I was a certified financial planner. I know about this stuff, right? And even I was surprised going through it myself, what a pain in the neck it was to just settle an estate. And he had a trust and everything was titled correctly and it still worked. So I think that one piece of advice that I try to tell people when you, you know, when you're naming your kids executors or co-executors or this that are trustees is that you should name someone who's organized because it actually takes some work to do this. I think that an attorney can really help with the process. But even that you have to you have to do it. It becomes this weird full time job for a very short period of time, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, the attorney might be able to help with certain documents like receipt and releases or documents related to transferring the title. But boy, are you right, because you've got to roll up your sleeves, clean out the garage, pack up all the personalities, ask your siblings who wants what, oftentimes moderate the dispute, then perhaps sell the house, decide which broker you're using, tell your siblings that you're listing the house for five ninety nine nine, only for them to tell you, no, 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 the house across the street sold for 670 you should sell it for 670 and you get into these daily squabbles about whether or not what you're doing is right or second guessing which is also annoying yeah or second guessing so uh, it is a lot of work and if everything goes swimmingly usually you don't really get a thank you <laughs> but if there's bumps along the way or problems it's kind of unbelievable how quickly siblings will look at you with a raised eyebrow and suggest that maybe you're not paying enough attention to the job at hand and maybe you should refer to someone or let me do it. So it's not an easy job. When people are making decisions before, or let's say as they're, get, they're aging, I, I get a lot of calls on the show about like, mom just threw the house in my name. 
And it seems like a lot of the work that you do, professional like you, can sometimes be undone by these people who are called elder care specialists and elder care. Sometimes they're attorneys, but they're, I don't want to belittle the whole field, but some of these dudes are shysters, man. And they are doing stuff that is nutty, nutty, all because mom says, well, then I want to be able to impoverish myself so I can get Medicaid for nursing home care. But there are all these decisions they're making that have actual big ramifications for the next generation. So let's talk about those ramifications. Number one is under the guise of Medicaid or elder law planning, too often clients are transferring assets out of their names into, by way of example, one daughter's name and not the other two. The problem with that is you've effectively transferred title. Now it's a testamentary substitute. When mom dies, it's going to pass to that daughter whose name is on the account. Now, the other two daughters might say, wait a minute, mom didn't have what's called donative intent. She didn't mean for you to get it, Jill. What she was trying to do was create convenience. And therefore, this transfer to you should be voided by the courts. So I'm seeing intrafamily litigation as a result of this Medicaid spend-down process where accounts are being retitled, theoretically to avoid a Medicaid claim or to make parent available to get Medicaid so they can go into a nursing home, but it's causing a whole new problem, which is how the asset passed. Mm. Maybe utilization of a trust, which distributes assets equally, would work. But the second problem that a lot of clients are not paying attention to is the step-up in basis. Mm -hmm. If mom and dad bought their house in 1968 for $22,000, and now this house in, pick your town, Plainsfield, New Jersey, is now worth $600,000, and you transfer it into this Medicaid trust, you just lost your basis adjustment. Right. Meaning at death, it would the basis would be stepped up from what they paid plus improvements, just call it $50,000, it would have gotten stepped up to the 600000 and there would have been no capital gains. But once they throw it in my name overnight, I just inherit it as if I bought that house at $22,000. Correct. So before we finish up, you have, I imagine, you know, you, you deal with really, really rich people, but you deal with regular people too. What do you think at the end of the day is the feeling that most people have once they're signing all their documents? Do you think they feel relief? Absolutely. I was going to say relief. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. They feel like they can check the box. And I always say to them, it's wonderful, but just note, this is not a one-off transaction. Every couple of years, even if you just call me and I open up the file and we chat for 15 minutes just to do a checkup, just like you would physically go to a doctor and get a checkup. So view it as a process, not a one-time check the box. Although it feels good to check the box, at least for this year. It certainly does. And I understand. All right. My bookend question. You ready? Yes. What's the worst money decision or career decision that you've ever made? Unfortunately, fairly recently, I was nervous about uh, the economy. And I had thought when I saw the Dow at 22,000 and I thought that uh, the globe was at risk, I decided 
that I'll just sit in cash and wait it out. Meanwhile, the market's gone up 20%, right? So there, there, I just exposed myself, but uh, I was concerned. And now I missed out on this big run. But what are you going to do? Wait, are you back in or not? I Not yet. Oh, my God. Mark, let's get him a little dollar cost averaging strategy. <laughs> Russell Fishkind, Esquire. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining my pleasure. us. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. After our interview segment, we do talk to you and we have our listener question of the week. This is when you get to ask me and Mark any question that's on your mind, financially speaking. All you got to do is send us an email. It's so easy. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That is what Andrea did. She is calling from Minnesota. And Andrea, welcome to the program. How can I help you out? Thanks, Jill. I have a question um, regarding investing for my children. Mm-hmm. I would like the opportunity to pick a few stocks, invest over a long period of time for them, but I'm not sure the best method to do that because I would like them to be the owner mm-hmm. of the investment mm-hmm. at the time of purchase. Oh, you can't do that. Are they minors? Yeah, they're minors. Yeah, they can't do it. I mean, the easiest, Why? first of all, let me go back. Why stock okay. versus a mutual fund? Um, I think it's just because, like, I I kind of like researching some things, and I think okay. it's going to be a good value over the long term. It's kind of like a little bit of a gamble. Like, I would do it in small quantities and see if there's, like, a payoff mm-hmm. at the end. Is it a way of, like, an educational tool, or are we talking about this as a real accumulation tool? I think at this point, because they're not old enough yeah. to understand what I'm doing, it'd be, like, the would be for accumulation, Mm -hmm. but as they're older, I'd like them to be educated on. Okay. I mean, look, the easiest way to do it is uh, how much money are we talking about? Pretty small amounts. I'm thinking kind of under like a thousand bucks a year. Okay. So there's a couple of ways you can do this. One is, Mm -hmm. you know, you can open up a cheap account at a place like TD Ameritrade or um, Charles Schwab or one of these places where you can do um, an execution of an individual stock transaction for pretty low cost. Okay. There's two ways to think about it, but I think the way that you would like it is probably as a custodial account where Mm -hmm. basically the kid owns the account, even though you're in control of it and gains are taxed at the child's tax rate. And once the child reaches 18, or 21, depending on where you live, the assets are under his or her control. The reason why that might be helpful for you is that, you know, you could then teach them about it, show them about it. But what's the risk? The risk is that, you know, they're crazy when they're 18 and a half years old. They can basically say, thank you very much, mom, for paying for this awesome graduation party. And we've got eight kegs. All the costs are covered. And... We're on our way. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not going to happen to your kids. Your kids are fabulous. I know that. But that's the risk for other people's children. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, if you want to do something, um, you could. And and by the way, if you didn't want to do just individual stocks in an account, you know, at any of these places, you can always put a mutual fund inside of that. You know, it's just that. You know, the other opportunity would be to try to do something with a direct reinvestment plan, which is called a drip account, but it's a little bit more of a pain in the neck. So I think that that's certainly something worth exploring. If you want to just, again, it's sort of instructive for you today, but in the future, if you say, I re- all I really want to do is essentially accumulate money for college, then you're going to do something like a 529 plan. 
And we do already have a 529 plan for them, but Mm -hmm. I don't have any choice over the investments. I mean, you can't, you certainly can't do individual stocks. Okay. That that I understand. But you, you look, you have something very specific you want to do. Okay. So if you really want to continue doing that, then it's not a problem and or start doing that. I shouldn't say continue. Mm -hmm. That's not a problem. I'm not I'm not here to like talk like it's a it's a small amount of money relative to, you know, what's happening here. But, you know, you usually have to be 18 years old to open an account on your own. If not, you know, you're not a legal adult yet. You can invest. But, you know, this custodial account could be the option for you. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, don't lose it all and make sure your kids don't have a big, huge keg party for high school graduation, okay? (laughs) I will do my best. All right. Good luck. Thanks for calling. Thank you, Jill. Thanks to our guest, Russell Fishkind. I hope he got it in your head that you need to manage your estate planning process. And also to our caller, Andrea. We drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. If you want to get on the air with us, just send an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the now-engaged executive producer of the program. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.